So years ago, I got to go to a, uh, a Super Bowl party, and I was told that there would be games and activities, and there was, but the hype leading up to this party was not on the game, obviously, not on the commercials or the halftime show, it wasn't even on the food or the cornhole tournament, it was on a little game called Super Bowl Squares, which to clarify is not Chief fans, silly joke, but a game where you guess, ah, you got it eventually, where you guess the score at the end of each quarter and the winning like little box gets a prize. And in this case, it was cash, it was money, it was tons of it, we're talking $5 here. And so knowing what was on the line and wanting that cash, going into the party, I researched, I Googled. I did a deep dive on every single Super Bowl score breakdown by quarter, made a little spreadsheet on Excel and whatnot, even Googled this according to the most uh, you know, popular gambling advice sites, and here's what it said. For Super Bowl squares, three, six, and seven are common occurrences. Zero, one, and four are more common than three, but less common than six and seven. For the best chances, we highly suggest betting on a square with a combination of those numbers, and that will give you the best chance to win. Boom. No problem. So I wrote that down just in case I forgot it. I got there early, Michael Scott style, with my potato salad, said my hellos, and I made my way over to the gigantic Super Bowl squares board. Pulled out my little cheat sheet that I had written, knowing I was gonna go for a seven and a three. I'd settle for a zero, definitely not a four, personal reasons, but there were no numbers on the board. Just empty squares. Turns out the numbers go on afterwards. And they don't go like in order. And so really, I told you all of this to tell you that 15 hours maybe wasted of my life because it didn't do anything. And that really has nothing to do with our scripture. I just wanted you to be informed in case you were going to a party today. Now you won't make that mistake. See, our scripture of Jesus today in the transfiguration is found in all three of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's recorded as this quick moment by Mark on a mountain right before Jesus sets his steps towards Jerusalem. Steps that are going to include as he goes to Jerusalem, suffering, betrayal, abandonment, even death, death on a cross. So it's not an accident that here today on Sunday as we head into Lent, which starts this Wednesday where we come forward and receive our ash crosses, we get a quick glimpse of the glory that is to come, a glory that shines forth in all its radiance on this mountain before the mountain at Calvary. And before we dive into our text from Mark chapter 9, we need to mention just what happens in the gospel of Mark chapter 8 right before this event, because we see some, we see some major things that happen in succession, boom, 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 Mark style. In that chapter of 8, you see Jesus feeding thousands of people. He heals a blind man. Peter then says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Jesus then tells his disciples that he must suffer and that he will be killed. Peter then takes Jesus aside and says, hey, don't talk like that. No way are you going to die. Jesus then tells Peter that to want that is to be like Satan, and he needs not say that. And in fact, the text says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then the chapter concludes with Jesus saying that to be his disciple means you must pick up your cross and follow him. And that is a lot to unpack in just one chapter, but that's just how Mark writes. Things are happening, and we want to stop and stay, but the, the greater purpose that Mark is driving us to, that Jesus is getting to, is still to come, and so Mark just keeps going. Because beyond the miracles, and beyond the healings, beyond the teachings, is a cross. And that is where Jesus is headed. And he will not rest or stop until what he has come to do is done. 
So this story picks up right after all of that in chapter 8. It's Mark chapter 9. If you brought your Bibles, it's in your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen. We just read it. So who knows really what Peter, James, and John thought was going to happen as they went up on that mountain. But they were alone, just the four of them. And then suddenly, Jesus' appearance is transformed right before their eyes. You look at Luke, he uses the word lightning. Matthew says that Jesus' faith shone like the sun. Mark has the whiter than anyone could ever bleach. And both Matthew and Mark use this word transfigured to describe what happened to Jesus. For this brief time, Jesus took on appearance that was more appropriate for the king of glory than for the humble man that he walked around with every day. Some commentaries even say that this was not a miracle, but the actual temporary pause of the ongoing miracle which was that most of the time Jesus stopped himself from displaying his glory. But I don't want you to be so indifferent as to, uh, as to what he does and just get caught up in the glory and wonder of how he's, how he's shining. See, Jesus had described himself in that chapter 8 as the Son of Man coming in glory. The Son of Man was a term that the prophet Daniel used and wrote about God and said the Ancient of Days took his throne and his clothing was white as snow. There is no mistake here on this mountain. If there was any other doubt before, there is none now. Jesus is God. It's clear. And there is glory coming like the world has never seen, nor will it be recreated again until he comes back. So while we may not understand the how of how this happened, we definitely don't have to guess as to the what and why this shows. The what is that he is God. And the why... Well, the why helps us because it's easy to forget the glory and all that is promised when our eyes just keep seeing hurt and loss and our ears keep hearing devastation and trouble. This moment, this transfiguration is a reminding, reminder that suffering is expected and that the glory of God is not changed by death or pain. Nothing takes from him and his glory from who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. We keep going, and we see two people pop up. Now, because I get this question a lot, and we had the fourth and fifth graders singing like Stefan was saying, I pointed out that the immediate recognition of these two men who appeared in this glorious splendor alongside Jesus without any proper identic, uh, introduction or name tags that said, hello, my name is Moses, points out to us that we're going to recognize people in heaven. And I take great comfort in that, knowing that when we get there, we will remember and we will see the ones who love us and experience life with them again. And if you're wondering why, why these two, why Elijah and Moses, why not Abraham or David or Joshua or Joseph or Daniel, like we mentioned before, it was because probably Moses and Elijah represents those who were called up to God. Moses represents those who die and go to glory. Elijah represents those who were caught up to heaven and never died. And it's also traditionally been taught that Moses represents the law and that Elijah represents the prophets. So that the sum of, of everything the Old Testament represents and talks about comes and meets with Jesus here at the Mount of Transfiguration. It indicates to us that, this, that Jesus' life and his mission are the fulfillment of God's promises and plans in the scriptures. And of all the things that these guys may have been talking about, might have discussed, we get hints in the other accounts in Matthew and Luke that they chose to talk about Jesus' departure, his death. 
It seems that Moses and Elijah were interested in most in the working out of God's plan through Jesus and his death. And they spoke about what Jesus was going to do at Jerusalem. We take a moment and step into the story. We can almost picture Moses and Elijah looking at Jesus as they talk and asking him, are you really going to do it? Moses, who offered to die in place of the people, may have looked at Jesus and said, I offered to be judged in the place of these people, but God wouldn't have it. Can you do this, Jesus? Can you go in the place of these people? And the answer is, yes, he can. He stands in our place. Jesus is the one who has borne the punishment of our sin. He alone is the sacrifice for us. There is no other one who saves us. Not ourselves, but the free gift of God is that Jesus Christ died for you and in your place. And by his death and resurrection, you are saved. That's the gospel. That's the hope that we cling to. Not that we earn our grace or keep our grace and salvation, but rather we are given it freely on account of Jesus. I wonder what Elijah might have asked. He might have said something like, I was persecuted terribly. By Ahab and Jezebel, I hated it. Sometimes I even went into a deep spiritual depression. Are you through that? You are you sure that you're going to be able to handle that, Jesus? Can you can you go through with this death? And you know the answer: Yes, he can, and he does. He drinks the cup of wrath like he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experiences on the cross God turning His face from Him, so that on our behalf we will never have to experience that. That's not just some small detail. That, mean that, God, that means that God sees you always, that he doesn't turn his face from you. He's not watching you, making sure that you're being good and making a list and checking it twice. He's seeing you, that his face is upon you, caring for you, and making sure that no one ever snatches you from his hand. Because the heavenly king, Jesus, was given for you so that you would know grace, so that you could be given freedom, and have your fear removed of, am I good enough for God? Does he know me? And the answer is yes, on account of Jesus. And then it gets real interesting, because Peter speaks. And the part of this story is interesting, because like many of us do, Peter makes trouble for himself when he speaks. Not knowing what to say, sometimes it's just best to be silent. Someone in this room, definitely not anyone I'm related to, needs to hear that lesson today. Sorry. But one thing is clear here. Peter said, I didn't, I was about me, not about you. Uh, Peter said what he said because he didn't want the scene of glory to stop. Peter doesn't want this moment to go away. Remember what we talked about at the beginning that happens in chapter 8? Six days before when Jesus said, I'm going to die and that you disciples have to pick up your cross and follow me. Peter rebukes Jesus for talking that way. And Jesus says, you're mistaken. You have the way of man, not the way of God. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's responses in the moments are strikingly different. One, he says, no, no, no. I don't want to suffer. Forget that idea. Forget the idea of being rejected and crucified. I want to do this. I want to stay here in the shelters. We can live this way with glory and blessing, and it'll be great. And you probably get that. I know that I do. Why not stay? Why not stay on the mountain? Why not make it a permanent thing? All glory, all the time. If he could do it, why doesn't he? Why would, why would, he, why would we then, in response, choose to pick up our cross? Why would we choose to embrace suffering? 
Why would you choose to turn the other cheek, choose to deny yourself? I thought that when you believe in Jesus, that means that I am get to be like this really good person now, a perfect person who's always blessed all the time. That moving forward, now that I follow you, Jesus, my life is going to be good. Isn't that what I signed up for? What's this bit now here about suffering and picking up my cross? I mean, why would anyone do that? More so, why would you want that? And the answer is because this is what Jesus did. See, Peter's suggestion meant not only would Jesus avoid the cross, but then he would get to avoid the cross as well. So yeah, I get wanting to stay on the mountain, and maybe you do too. Because I like having the blessing, the sevens, the threes, the zeros. I see a blank space, and it can get hard. We don't know what to do. So a cloud appears, and a voice comes, and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The voice from the cloud of glory makes it clear that Jesus was not on the same level as Moses, Elijah, or the disciples, but that Jesus is the beloved son. So listen to him. Moses, Elijah, these are great men who have important places in God's unfolding plan of the ages. Yet compared to Jesus, the Messiah, to God the Son, they're not even mentioned by him. They're insignificant. So all the focus and attention is supposed to be on Jesus. For as great as they are, they don't compare to the beloved Son, Jesus. So listen to him. Think of what you sang today. Songs to Jesus who you called Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. It's not the values of Jesus. It's not the choices we make or the thoughts that we have. It is just Jesus. And if Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets and you put them on the same value or above Jesus, do you know what you get? You get that the law then is equal to Jesus. And look at the result of that in our lives, in our world. When you elevate the law, you get war, you get greed, you get corruption, you get brokenness in our laws. Look at the places that you have put our leaders in our society. How can we trust what we hear when everything changes and is declared either false or misinformation by this person, but not this person, or that we have our own truths, and that there's this secret agenda that we just don't know about? And when we can't trust our laws and we can't trust our leaders, well, then we just stop turning to them and we look inward to care for ourselves, to make sure that, well, whatever happens out there, I need to make sure that me is good. Goes back to that blessing that I want right now, because what's the point of all of this? And that's why we need Jesus. You don't need a new law. You don't need a new leader or some secret tip to win at life and get sevens and threes and zeros, but you need Jesus alone. Christ must be the focus. And then everything else is going to follow. Christ first. And then look to him. Or better yet, listen to him. The text makes it clear. This is my son. Listen to him. And so I'll close with this from the Apostle Paul when he wrote about listening to Jesus and how to do it. He said, let the word of Christ that's the Bible. Dwell among you richly 
as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let this word, the word of God, cover us. And then Jesus covers our brokenness. Let the word be what beckons us with the promises, promises of being his, promises of being found, of being loved, of being known, of being seen. And let the word of Jesus surround us and fill us. And Peter, James, John, they got to see the glory with their own eyes, but the other nine did not. But they still followed Jesus, even without that experience, because the word of God his promises was enough for them. And you may not get to encounter the voice of God the next time you go on top of a mountain, but that word of God is yours. That word of God is yours, spoken directly by him into you, straight into the heart, so that you may be confident that in this life you have his peace you have his love, you have his hope beyond the difficulties of whatever the journey brings in following him. Amen.